You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 14th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Steve, welcome back. Yeah, how was Thank the trip? Thank you. The trip was awesome. Vienna is yeah. such a beautiful, beautiful city. Mm. Have any of you guys been? Kara, have you ever been to Vienna? Yeah, I've been to Vienna. I liked it. I just thought it, there was like a slight cheese factor, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> like I really enjoyed it, but it, I you do more often than you would think see people walking down the street in powdered wigs. What? No. When did, When were you there? Really? I was there over the summer, maybe like five or six years ago. And Is there, there like a were, festival going on or something? I don't know, but it definitely... I didn't see a single powder oh, that's, that's outside good. of, you know, like the theater, you know? That's that's really good. But what's with the powdered wigs? Well, you know, the Vienna's heyday was the time of Mozart, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of Mozart stuff going on. Uh, Freud as well, the famous... Uh, person from Vienna. But it's a you know it's a very beautiful clean city, yeah. massive buildings, beautiful architecture like classic European architecture. Everyone was super nice. Pretty much everyone speaks English. You know, yeah. I very rarely do we encounter anybody, someone who didn't speak enough English to be get through the interaction. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So my my wife and I said, all right, we're going to do the one stupid touristy overpriced thing. We did the we did the carriage ride with one? the horses. Oh, fun! Uh, <laughs> it's it's fun, and it's also it was the first day we were there. So like, let's just do it, get a feel for the city. You know, we, we, you go around, they show you everything, and then because we basically could walk everywhere from our hotel. Awesome. You know, like cool. From our hotel to like the almost the far end of the city, it's like twenty minute walk. I mean, you can, and then if you if you you know want to, you can use. They have a really good uh, metro system. Um, they call it the U, you know, for the underground. But they also have buses and trams. So between the three of them, you could pretty much get anywhere, or you could yeah. just walk. You know, most places. But we, so we took the the carriage ride, which was cute, but. The uh, the person giving the ride, you know, was was giving us was pointing everything out, and it was just completely worthless. The they were providing no information whatsoever because <laughs> like what? that's a building over there. <laughs> yeah, so basically, so like if you look to your left, you'll see a German sounding name, and then over here to your right, there's another German sounding name, and I could barely <laughs> barely hear what they were saying. And whenever I could make out what they were saying, the name of the building was on the side of the building, so they. <laughs> Basically, so could have yeah, we could have gotten all the information that they gave us just by reading the plaques on the buildings that we were driving by, and then she would like do that thing where they, she would start to talk, then turn back to the front, and you couldn't hear a word she was saying because uh-huh. all you hear is the clopping of the hooves on the cobblestone. The other thing I realized though on that trip is that cobblestone no streets suck. They are pretty, <laughs> but like carriage wheels on a cobblestone street are terrible. Like, is that how everyone got around? Could you imagine 200 years ago when oh, all peasants. the streets were cobblestone? There was like no, you know, pavement and, and you were, everyone was getting around in carriages. That was terrible. It was the most bumpy ride I've ever had in my life. <laughs> most of the streets were paved. Every now and then we would hit a stretch of cobblestone streets like, oh my God, this is what travel was like back then. It was terrible. <laughs> Steve, do you notice how the weirdest part, the weirdest part for me when I travel internationally is coming home and everything's in English again? Yeah. Like you almost yeah, right. get used to everything just sort of being Greek to you. Like you can't read anything anywhere you go and you you start making it out and you like 
get sort of good at, at recognizing why street signs look the way they do and different. And then yeah. you get home and you're like, how boring. Everything's in English. Yeah, I know. It was kind of fun yeah, trying yeah. to trying to puzzle out yeah. all the signs. Like at one point, Jocelyn's like, what's Einbahn Street? Why do I see so many signs for Einbahn Street? I'm like, Joss, that's one way. so steve (laughs) to state the obvious you were in austria yes and one of my favorite human beings is from austria uh arnold schwarzenegger so you know what's the deal do they really talk like him there or what happened no i did not encounter one person who sounded like um arnold schwarzenegger arnold he is from a town called graz which is a it's more on the on the uh, German border, I think. We visited Graz, but it's true nobody there talks like him either. <laughs> no, the accent was was very subtle. It's nothing like you know the, the sort of fake theatrical accent that we make make fun of sometimes. It was very it was and the language itself is very pretty. It was fun listening to people speak German all the time. Mm-hmm. It's a very oh, that's cool. interesting language to listen to. But here's something it. else I realized. And think about this. Think about your entire life. What percentage of the time in your life when you heard somebody speaking German, were they a Nazi? <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, probably right. Probably yeah. like 80, 90%. I mean, every movie where um, an American hears somebody speaking German, probably there's a connection there. And yep. I realized just how programmed that was in my head. Like, when you <laughs> oh, hear no. German, that's the immediate association. It's terrible. But that's, I mean, every that movie that we think about any, think about any German character and, you know, in any movie that you saw or, or yeah, TV show it's or all whatever. it's all conditioning. Well, I mean, and there are stereotypes that are there for a reason, right? Like the German language is beautiful when you're being poetic and being beautiful, but it can also sound quite harsh. The same way the English language can sound quite harsh to certain ears, whereas the Italian language is much more sing-songy and the French language can sound a little snobby. Um a lot of that is stereotype, but it's also just the timbre of the language itself. Yeah. yeah. But well, yeah, I think we hear a very narrow range of what is quote unquote, ger- you know, that German language. That's There's true. There's actually lots of different accents within German. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yes. Oh, and that yes. The, the more harsh one that we're used to hearing on movies is not, you know, necessarily representative of the, of every region that speaks German, you know? Right. Not this angry, harsh sort of rhetorical way of speaking. We also can't really tell them apart. And it's similar when I always try to ask people when they're visiting the States, you know, like a scientist will be in a visiting lab and they have a really thick accent and I'll, but they speak English really well. But I'll say, can you hear different English accents and English dialects? And they almost never can. They're like, no, I can't tell the difference between somebody who lives in the Midwest or somebody who lives. But the one that they can point out is that they can sometimes hear deep, deep Southern accents. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense too. Okay. Steve, what was your number one uh, experience? Well, we went to a we went to a Mozart concert, which was very very good. Awesome. And at the at the end, they played the Blue Danube, which is not by Mozart, but I guess that's the city's theme song because oh. that was a real crowd pleaser. And you and you did hear I did hear that in other places while we were there. And of course, it's one of my favorite pieces. Partly because of the association with 2001, and I, you know, when you hear a when you hear a piece like that played live, it is just so much better. Uh, just because you catch you capture so much more of the nuance, and you see the the musicians playing, you kind of see and hear aspects of the of the piece that you don't really pick up if you're just listening to a recording of it. It was really beautiful, very emotional. So mm-hmm. that was that was fantastic. Uh, but the whole, everything we did was great. It was again. I thought it was a beautiful city. We had a great time. 
Um, everyone was very, very nice. And the conference was good. You know, I gave a lecture on science-based medicine. Oh, yeah, the, that. Yeah, at the, uh, <laughs> the Vienna Medical University, which I pointed out was the, the university that gave a degree to uh, the guy who invented iridology. Oh, no. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of homeopathy in Austria. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's big yeah. in the German-speaking German and Austria, mm-hmm. very big, yeah. One thing as, as Americans, especially like in any city we go to, you could always find a quickie mart at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night, right? Yeah, you could pop into Walgreens or Rite Aid. Whatever. Or, yeah. 8 o'clock at night, Dwayne shut Reed. down. That's it. Completely shut down. Couldn't get anything. Really? <laughs> and major city? No, no diet, nothing. Ah! No, wow. I know, but how good is the food? <laughs> oh, the food is awesome. Uh, Although I have so to say, good. of course, I had a Wiener Schnitzel, which is like their <laughs> signature disc, dish. I had. There's an Austrian restaurant right near where I live. Uh, in one town over, and uh, the food there is really incredible. And I was, you know, waiting to see how is it going to compare to the Viennese food, and it actually compares favorably to what I had in Vienna. All right. That that chef that, yeah, that just, he's Austrian, and he moved to to Connecticut and opened up a restaurant. He apparently is very good because his stuff is as good as anything I had in Vienna. Wow. But the food in Vienna was off the hook, You you know. uh, any, every meal I had there was really, really good. But no mm. diet, anything. But no diet, anything. So, well, okay. Every store had the exact same like five soft drinks: Coke, <laughs> Coke Light, right? Not not Diet Coke, but Coke Light, just right. like less <laughs> yep. sugar. Yeah. And then uh, like Fanta Orange, Sprite, and this like apple carbonated apple drink or whatever, and which is actually not that bad. But there was like nothing with aspartame, nothing with Splenda. I, I even went to the grocery store. Like, all right, I'm just going to buy sweetener at the grocery store to have with me. Nope, they didn't have it either. They had stevia, which tastes like ass. I don't know if you've ever had stevia. But, <laughs> Come on, really? And saccharin. That That's was it. Method. Again, yeah, no method. aspartame, no saccharin. Splenda. The most popular sweetener of saccharin. 1973. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it oh, tastes God. like medicine. So I just basically that? had to just have sparkling water everywhere, which is like what my you like, Mrs. Spark? Default, yeah. yeah. I remember when I the you know I quit drinking Coke like less than a year ago, but I was a red can you know Coke classic kind of person my whole life, like in a bad way, and so that was always so comforting when I would travel internationally. It's like it doesn't matter where you go on this planet, Coca Cola has planted yeah, their flag. It. <laughs> Although it's bottled locally, so it tastes a little different. But it always uh, yeah. tastes a bit different. Yeah, I, but at least I, I have to avoid caffeine, so I couldn't have any of it. Uh, um, and then the other thing is that uh, they're really big into the whole natural GMO free, free thing. Mm. It's like probably worse, Kara, wow. than California. Worse. I mean, That's crazy. What? Really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have the bio market, you know, everything. That's why I think that's why they don't have aspartame or anything like that there. It's just that that's their thing. Mm. All of Europe is that way. They're just completely crazy, anti-GMO, all that stuff. Uh, they just have a very different Yikes. cultural concept of food. You know what I mean? Like the whole food is this natural breathing thing. It's and you can't do anything artificial to it. Ever that's just embedded in the culture. Yeah. So that oh, wow. was very that. much in evidence. They, and we like we all the menus had this crazy like like literally like twenty thirty different codes for everything it has in it. Like every possible kind of allergy was coded on every, which I oh guess is gosh. a good thing. But it was yeah, that's not way bad. more than anything I've seen in the United States. Like in the United States, it's like yeah, peanuts and a couple of few other things. And some calories. This and was calories, a, yeah, in certain parts. Or is that yeah, now? This was, there was literally a key with like twenty five different things that they would indicate in the menu. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. Um, but oh my God, the pastries. 
<laughs> yeah, the Patriots were incredible. Well, tell, so this tell, is, tell me about it. <laughs> I mean, you know. So okay, so the 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 most famous one that we went to was this um, the soccer tort. Have you ever heard of that carriage? Yes, the soccer tort. When you were I there, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of big, right? It's this. It's the the most chocolate cake you'll ever have in your life. And basically. does it like? Do they sell them in like a tin can? In a well, lot. No, of this was you. You go there's a there's a hotel uh-huh. that. I guess invented this thing and yes. You, so we, we went, went to, there. We went to the hotel and sat. It's like there's glass um, windows, kind of like around yeah. half of it. Yes, and it's in, in a little square. I remember so, that. Yeah, so we went I'm there. Not we getting got the context. This, the hotel like, invented what? A this, cake. It's a, it's like a chocolate cake. Like right. It's it's a tort and yes. it's S A C H E R soccer. That's the mm-hmm. name of the hotel. So it's the soccer tort, and it's famous for that and. So we got it, and it was yeah, it was like really delicious chocolate. Of course, their chocolate is awesome. Yeah, and I think you can buy them to take home with you, and they're like in a big metal tin. But that wasn't even the best dessert I had there. I mean, that was you know, there's like yeah, I mean, I had to keep it under control. But uh, (laughs) yeah, just everything was was fantastic. It was uh, Mm. they definitely know what they're doing there. I could eat spetzel and schnitzel, and whipped potatoes and sausage every day of my life, and then my heart would explode. All right, well, Bob, get us started with a forgotten superhero of science. Yes, for this week's superhero of science, I'm covering Beatrice Schilling, 1909 to 1990. She was an engineer who fixed the carburetor on the Spitfire's Merlin engines, allowing them to dive without fear of stalling during aerial combat. Uh, Schilling grew up tinkering with motorcycles and dreaming of being an engineer one day. Uh, that day, that day pretty much came in 1932. She got a Master of Science in Mechanical Engineering, and within a few years, she started working for the for the business or company that she'd be with until retirement. Uh, she was the scientific officer, or as I like to call the science officer, of the Royal Aircraft Establishment, RAE, which basically did the R&D for the Royal Air Force. Her claim to fame is uh, the unfortunately nicknamed Miss Schilling's Orifice. <laughs> what? Yeah, I know. Okay. It's not pleasant, but the, the people that called it that was, you know, the, it was done with affection, but maybe they didn't interpret it the way we do now. But <laughs> the bottom line, so this basically fixed a problem with the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine. Uh, this was, a, it's a British 27 liter liquid cooled V12 piston aero engine, uh, one of the most successful aircraft engines during World War II. But it had a problem early on and it was discovered during some of the, some battles like the Battle of Britain. RAF pilots realized that when they started a nosedive, the negative G forces would basically flood the carburetor, causing a stall. Not fun in aerial combat. That must have been scary as hell. Uh, and I, it, I think it probably caused some deaths too, right? You, you go in a dive and your engine stalls? I mean, Not a good thing, it, yeah. Not a good thing. Unfortunately, uh, the fuel-injected German planes did not stall. So so all they really had to do to, to get away, if they were in like dire straits, all they had to do was do a nice a nice dive and they could and they could they could escape the RAF pilots. So that was that must have been annoying and as frustrating as hell. So Schilling fixed this very easily with uh what's technically called an RAE restrictor, which was essentially a disc that was fit on the carburetor that prevented flooding. So this worked great for for quick dives for years until a permanent solution was created, uh, namely a pressurized carburetor. Uh, that really solved the problem. But for I think it was for at least a few years that they used this and it, it worked for 
for for many many different dive scenarios not not long extended dives but for for quick dives it was great it's funny i'd like to imagine that very first RAF pilot with the with her restrictor on his carburetor i bet he was just waiting uh, for the enemy to dive so that he could freak them out and follow them down that dive yeah that like, poor yeah. that poor german pilot was like all you got to do is do a nose dive and he won't follow you <laughs> psych so all all of that thanks to Schilling so remember Beatrice Schilling Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing upper explosive limits, or perhaps the dreaded hydrolock. Mm. <laughs> the hydrolock. Mm. I like nice. that. All right. Thanks, Bob. Kara, tell us about deep brain stimulation. I like this stuff. You like this stuff? Yes, I like deep brain stimulation. Get your fingers way down deep inside. <laughs> I was going to say, have you ever been stimulated deep in your brain? It's pretty no, invasive. Um, up what? Till now. Magnetic fields? No, well, that's not considered deep brain. Oh, it's not. Ooh. That's no. That's, that's uh, the the brain crust and ma- upper mantle. What is what? <laughs> so, j- be careful what you order, Bob. Um. So let's talk about this a little bit. There are a bunch of different ways to stimulate the brain. We know we've known about many for many years. Um, a nice list here. There's transcranial magnetic stimulation, but of course that's transcranial. It's across the cranius, uh, cranium, <laughs> cranius. The cranius. There's, uh, yeah, that's, what I, that's that was Cranium's a very, it's a, word. It's a very cromulent word. word, you guys. Okay. I like it. I like <laughs> the recovery. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, there's, um, of course, there's transcranial direct current stimulation, and I've done TMS and TDCS before, so I could tell you a little bit about my experience with that. Um, but both of those are on the outside of the brain and they go across the cranium. There's magnetic seizure therapy, there's vagus nerve stimulation, and of course, there's deep brain stimulation, which we often think about and hear about as a treatment for for example, for Parkinson's disease, but it's invasive, right? Deep brain stimulation requires that you actually go into the brain and place electrodes. There's usually a learning period around that. You know, the the neurosurgeons and the neuroscientists, there's usually a neuroscientist in the room who has been working on the map. They're able to find the right place to place the electrodes by switching it on and off during the awake surgery. But then afterward, there's a long training period to really learn exactly how much stimulation is the right amount of stimulation and how well it works. So obviously, there are a lot of options available for different uses. But there's a new paper that came out in Cell, and it was written by uh, Nier Grossman and his colleagues from the lab of Edward Boyden at MIT. And they developed a new system where they do non-invasive deep brain stimulation. So they basically have two scalp electrodes, which you have in... um, you have in TDCS, for example, transcranial direct current stimulation, whereas in TDCS, you have an anode and a cathode, and you basically just close a circuit. And so the um, electrical pulse goes all the way through. It finds the path of least resistance between the anode and the cathode. This is a completely different thing. Basically, both fields put out a frequency or both electrodes put out a frequency field, but they're tuned slightly differently. So let's say one electrode is putting out two kilohertz and the other electrode is putting out 2.01 kilohertz. Now the kilohertz range is way too high to have a neuronal effect, but where they overlap, they actually form an interference pattern. And that interference pattern is way lower, like in the hertz range, like it could be five, 10 hertz. And that interference pattern is actually what has been shown in these lab studies with mice 
to have an effect on neural activity, and it has an effect deep below the cortex. So they have done studies on mice looking, for example, at the hippocampus, and they've been able to show that hippocampal neurons are stimulated while cortical neurons are quiet using this deep brain stimulation device that they're, that they're calling temporally interfering electric fil- fields or temporal interference stimulation. Now, they've only done this in mice. And what would be the biggest, hmm, I wonder if this will work in humans? What do you guys think? Do it in monkeys. Yeah, we got to do it in monkeys first. Yeah, yeah. But why do you, the, the authors are saying they think there's no problem this is going to work in humans. And they're even, all of the images in their paper are of human brains, which is interesting because even they're they doing use it mouse in mice. brains. Yeah. Um, but what what's the biggest difference? There are a it's lot size. of differences. Yes, yeah, of volume. course. <laughs> yeah, human, human brains are big. And so the oh, difference yeah. between the cortex and the hippocampus is a way bigger area that you have to traverse. Yeah. Like in a mouse brain, the hippocampus was only three millimeters away from the electrodes. <laughs> you know, it's like okay. mouse brains are small. But the cool thing about this is that it's actually apparently what they say or what they call um, steerable, meaning that by changing the voltages, they're able to pinpoint different areas within the brain. Now, the edges aren't that clean. So that's obviously something to take into consideration. Nearby structures will probably still be stimulated, but they're wondering if adding more electrodes and being able to pinpoint based on kind of triangulating those electrodes wouldn't give more pinpointed stimulation. Now, there was a great write-up on this by Neuroskeptic, who writes for Discover, um, for one of the blogs on Discover. And Neuroskeptic is very skeptical. Even though he says it's cliche, he thinks this could be like one of the sort of biggest achievements in neuroscience if it really does pan out. This could change a lot if it if it works. He also did a really good job to point out that the authors in the paper kind of wrote it up as if they were the first people to ever think of of this protocol and they were the first people to ever think of kind of the the physics and the geometry of doing it this way. But apparently interferential stimulation was first proposed by Soviet scientists in the 1960s. And it's actually an established usage in electrotherapy. So doing this similar thing where you have the two electric fields that overlap and form an interference pattern is used quite often on the nerves to treat pain. But it does seem to be the case that these authors were the first people to ever do this in in lab and and publish having done this on the brain like a like going through the skull and scalp and going deep into the brain so super interesting i think it has a lot of promise i'm really excited to see it done in humans and the good news is human trials on something like this are probably going to be significantly easier to start undertaking because even though some authors, I actually found an interesting paper in Frontiers in Systems Neuroscience by a couple of UK and Italian authors who think that we should be changing the medical definition of invasive versus non-invasive because of these new tools like brain stimulation and um, optogenetics, where just because you don't make an incision doesn't mean that you can't do potential harm and doesn't mean that the side effects can't be pretty significant. So, well, I've heard the term semi-invasive applied to situations like that. Where oh, okay, it, it yeah, may not be cutting into the body, but there it is. You are affecting stuff, you know, directly. So, it, it, yeah. So, I, I think that's a reasonable term to use a semi-invasive procedure. 
Absolutely. But I still think, and correct me um, if you think I'm wrong, Steve, research on these kind of semi-invasive tools like brain stimulation, probably the protocols are easier to dive into sooner on human subjects. Because we already do TDCS. We already have yeah. an established track record with deep brain stimulation and with transcranial magnetic knockout studies and things like that. So Yeah, but anything new new like this, any device, you have to get FDA approval for like a for research even. Yeah. And they you know, they just want to make sure that you're not gonna fry people's brains, right? You know, they just want to make sure that they're safe. Absolutely. But, and so, so you will yeah. have to go through that step. To do it on to on people, yeah. And you're probably right. Try it on primates or or cats or dogs or any other research animals that have larger brains. Yeah, you got to get closer to us in size. Like for mm-hmm. example, one of the the speculations here is that if you scale this up to human size, you're going to be using currents that may not be tolerable. You know, exactly. It's be stimulating too, a little bit too strongly there. So, yeah, it's very intriguing. But wow, is there a big difference between mouse brains and people brains? And you just can't say. You know, I'll, yeah, I, I get more interested in this kind of thing when they're doing it on monkeys because they're, absolutely they're getting close there. Did they mention anything like what? What would be an amazing outcome for this? Uh, well, an amazing outcome would be to be able to do this, for example, on a Parkinson's patient, and they would never have to have surgery. Okay, I get it. Yeah, it could also be used to stop a seizure in progress. Yeah, that's true. Oh, that would be amazing. Theoretically, for migraines, imagine you have a migraine, mm-hmm. you know, slap an electrode on your temple and stop it. You know, oh my God! Damn. Without having to take medications, so that's all possible. And there are already devices, transcutaneous devices, yeah. that are approved, but still really in the in the early kind of stages for migraines. And they just can't really get that deep. That's been the biggest yeah. problem. Because in order to go deep, the voltages end up being too high, like you said. And in this case, that might still be a problem. But you know, we want these small, small voltages that are at the level that are going to affect the neurons, you know, inducing them to either fire or to not fire. But in order to get, you know, it decays. So in order to get that deep, often we're talking about electrodes that are right on your skull. And I remember when I did just transcranial direct current stimulation, it it feels prickly, like it feels hot on your head. And that was under a research protocol with an FDA approved device in a in a research hospital, people doing this at home, like they can hurt themselves. And I've seen DIY examples. We did a, a whole. Oh, yeah. Rep- when you do it yourself, brain Yeah, no it's crazy. You. Part of the problem, the big problem is the skull. The skull itself dramatically attenuates any electrical activity. Damn skull. The skull, there's fat. You have so much yeah. fat around your head and you have fluid around your brain. Wait, are you yeah. saying that I'm a fathead? You're a fathead. <laughs> so imagine this, Kara. I don't know if this will ever happen, but imagine if you just like drill two small holes through your skull to make portals. Yeah. That, that you could then put the devices over the portals so that you could stimulate much lower, you know, energy and still get the signal down deep into the brain. Babies, babies live for months that way, but you know, their, their skull isn't fused. Yeah, it's, floating, not a, right? it's not a problem. Yeah, no, no, no. And lab yeah. animals, a common protocol in lab animals when you want to be able to see inside the brain is to remove part of the skull and surgically remove part of the skull and put a put clear window in. Yeah, and then look oh, wow. through that window. Yeah, Bob, don't get any ideas. <laughs> yeah, and Jay, wow. when you do that, you cool. can see the brain pulsating. No, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I, I decided right. that the brain does not do that. <laughs> you decided. Yep. You told science it was wrong. Yes, it the is brain wrong. never moves, right, Jay? <laughs> All right, Jay. What? Jay, tell what? me this: Should you exercise on a full stomach or an empty stomach? Hmm, interesting. That's a great question, Steve, and science has actually delivered a pretty damn good answer. 
But <laughs> pseudoscience has also delivered an answer. <laughs> Which one is correct? <laughs> yeah, oh, so. no. <laughs> so you guys may have, you might have heard I need about confirmation the, bias here, Jay. I, yeah, I've got to make sure I've been doing it right this whole time. Let me, let me help shed a little bit of skeptical light on this question. So you, you have definitely heard, especially the people on this show, you've heard about this idea to maximize fat burning. You should fast before you exercise. I've heard that. You know, for the 20 years, I've heard people talking about that in all the gyms I've been to. Now, the really? idea here is since your your body is running on stored energy, which is your fat, that while you exercise, you will increase your fat burning instead of burning the energy from the glucose in, that's in your blood from a recent meal. So the yeah, concept... Don't you don't you need to have enough sugar like available to your brain so you don't lose consciousness or throw up? Or Yeah, we're not talking about days of fasting. We're talking about hours of fasting. Just wake up in the morning and go work out before right. you eat breakfast. I Overnight okay. fasting. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Don't, don't exercise after a meal is yeah. really what they're saying. Yeah, like, look at it like gotcha. this. The idea here is that once you eat, your body's breaking down and using the food for fuel for your entire body. Fat burning supposedly ends once you eat something – and your blood sugar levels go up. So the, the, you eat food, your blood sugar levels go up very quickly from eating food. And you know, on the surface, this idea, you know, it seems relatively cromulent. Okay, so if I don't eat and I don't have that sugar coursing through my veins, then my body is going to turn to my fat stores for energy. That's, that's the base concept here. Now, people who adhere to the, this practice, they call it a fasted exercise. And that means, of course, that you're working out while, quote unquote, fasting. Okay. Oh, I thought they went faster than normal. Okay. Gotcha. Thank fasted you. Fasted exercise. Yeah. I work out in 30 seconds. Name that workout. So uh, what does the latest research have to say about this? The, the reality is, of course, more complicated than this simple view that I just painted above about fasted exercise. So an experiment was done in 2014 that I referenced that shed some specific light on this exact thing. So they tested people with a fasted workout versus a control group who ate before the workout. So they used 20 women. They split the, the, the women into two different groups, one for the fasted workout and one for the fed workout. The training was one hour of a steady state aerobic exercise, three days a week, and all the test subjects were given a customized dietary plan that would give them a caloric deficit, meaning that they were on target to lose weight no matter what they did. The food intake of those tested were monitored as well to make sure that it, it was they were eating the proper diet that they were given, and this was this was monitored on a regular basis. Now, those who were in the fasted group exercised in the morning after they you know right after they got up, after and not eating all night, and not eating anything after they woke up. Right, so they get up and they exercise on an empty stomach. They were given a meal shake right after the exercise, which lasted one hour. The other group was given a meal shake right before the exercise. The research showed that it didn't matter when the, the calories were consumed. Exercising after you had a meal or not made no difference. Ooh. Yep. In fact, there's a risk to fasting before exercise mm -hmm. because you're liable to burn more muscle for energy than if you're fed before the exercise. Your body will burn muscle before it decides to burn fat or you know, there's a percentage of muscle that will get burned over fat if you are you're suffering from a lack of energy, a lack of actual glucose in your blood. Yeah. Yeah, for um, a lack of glucose specifically because right. your 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 brain needs glucose. It, it, your brain you know really can't use fat as energy. It ha it needs glucose. Mm -hmm. And if it starts to get too low and you don't have the stores because you're it'll fasting, make it. it well, it'll, it you, you humans can't make sugar 
you know, but you, it, what is it, it? Gluconeogenesis or something? Yeah, we don't like do that. that, but we don't do that. Like animals that hibernate could do that. They could make sugar out of fat, but we can't do that. So we make the next best thing, which is ketones. Oh, and yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. And that's mm-hmm. made from protein. So that's why you start to build, you burn muscle to make the mm-hmm. ketones because that's the fast energy like sugar. But that's that you don't want to do that. Uh, that's that's that you've already heard that ketosis like that's the whole point of a low carb mm-hmm. diet is yeah. to induce ket- it's all bullshit. So the, <laughs> the yeah the, this is a persistent myth this notion that you should fast before your before you work out because you want to burn fat it's crap it doesn't matter when you consume your calories it doesn't matter when you consume your calories the only thing that matters is how many calories you burn because you you eat and how many you burn because if you think about it let's say you eat a meal you have the glucose you have the nutrients from the meal that you eat then you burn them all off from exercise right then what are you going to be using for energy over the next few hours until your next meal you're still going to be burning your fat stores yeah. Right, so it makes it. It doesn't make any conceptual sense, not even any basic common sense. When you think about it all the way through, it's really and it. And the research shows, yep, it should be nonsense, and it in fact is nonsense. And in fact, if anything, it's a it's a net negative because you're more likely to burn your muscle rather than just use the glucose that you eat and then use your fat stores to. For homeostasis. Yeah, people uh, often don't think of catabolism, right? Yeah. Our metabolisms, like catabolism is breaking things down for energy, anabolism is building up, but we don't think that catabolism happens all the time, whether we're, you know, sitting on the couch or run- it obviously happens to a bigger extent when we're exercising, but it requires energy to be alive, you yeah. know? And so obviously just to get through the day, we have to have that fuel. And I think the point that you made about needing glucose for your brain is so important because the other two risks um, that are sort of related to, Jay, what you said, if you don't have any glucose stores, you could lose consciousness while you're right. exercising. Yeah. Like you can get really oh, sick um, yeah. if, if there's not enough glucose getting to your brain. But second to that, if you do start breaking down that muscle and you start doing it really rapidly, um, that can also lead to rhabdomyolitis, which is secondary i think a lot of times to like you you hear about it being correlated with crossfit and with people who push their bodies way too hard um i have a friend who actually got rhabdo and she's a physician it's gross so just muscle breakdown yeah it's it's when your muscles physically break down and you don't really have the mechanism to be able to dispose of that much myoglobin you end up urinating a lot of myoglobin out like the biggest thing that you notice when you have rhabdo is um they say Coca-Cola colored urine. Like that's a bad sign. Oh my God. And compartment ah, syndrome where compartment? you'll start, you'll just start to have fluid building up in certain compartments. Like your fingers might just start build up fluid or your arm might oh, to start building up water. Fluid. <laughs> yeah, but it, it actually can cut off some of the blood flow to those areas. And the treatment that's for cool. rhabdo is aggressive rehydration. So yeah. you like you have to go into the hospital and get like an insane saline drip. Like my friend who again, she's a physician. So, you know, it's one of those things where she's like, I think I might have rhabdo. No, I'm being overly obsessive. And then she went to the doctor and she and the doctor was like, Holy shit, you have rhabdo. <laughs> like we need to um we need to put you on a on a drip. Kara, how long does it take to get you know rid of rhabdo? Depends on the number. But the other thing is, uh, Jay, is that you know, when you're working out, you want the workout itself to be optimal, right? Who the hell wants to like be you know starved while you're working out? You want your body to have 
that's when you need all your your calories and nutrients, right? So oh, that's it doesn't true. Even make sense. Yeah. You're probably going to do a better workout if you are. I, I don't like to work out on a full stomach. I mean, I don't want to like go right from right, like a I've, table to to an exercise. I feel like you, I want to puke. If yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. But there's a happy medium in there where you've eat, you, you're not fasting, but you're not you're, there's not food in your stomach, and it has to be mentioned: be well hydrated, absolutely oh, hydrate. Yeah, yeah, and then you'll you'll get a, you'll actually get a safer better, you know, exercise in that situation and healthier. Uh, and don't then feel just like don't, shit at the end don't of it worry either. about when you consume your calories. You just it, It's the total amount that matters. And you should spread them out throughout the day, again, just to maintain sort of a steady state of, of uh, blood sugar, et cetera. You just want to, you want to avoid the wild fluctuations in your blood sugar. One good way to have your blood sugar crash is to fast and then work out, right? That's like the exact thing you shouldn't do. Oh, yeah. Can uh, you imagine somebody with diabetes doing that? Yeah. It's a big mm-hmm. exercise is very good for diabetics in general. So almost any exercise they do is going to be good for them. But yeah, that's good. Yeah, but you don't, good. you want, it's very important to maintain that steady state, you know, not to have wild fluctuations. Anything that steers you away from staying well hydrated and having a nice, regular, balanced meal yeah. or meal plan, right? Eat three meals a day. Have variety in your diet. Eat a lot of green leafy vegetables. You know, have some lean protein. You have that good mix. Everything you do is going to be fine. You're, yeah. You're, 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 right? You had said, you know, just you want to spread it out. And that's like for your metabolism. You want to spread out the number of calories that you consume in the day. But you hear a lot of times that you shouldn't eat high caloric things before you go to sleep. That's also a myth. Interesting. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when you consume your calories. Nice. Well, right. I mean, but there are there are other things – to consider, such as the effects of heartburn. heartburn it might interfere might with your in. sleep. I tell people don't eat right. right before you get to bed. That's not for weight management. No, that's not for just for management. your sleep quality. You don't want to be digesting food or, yeah, get reflux or. Oh, I hate you know. that. So, no, yeah. And also, sometimes people have to get up in the middle of the night to pee. It's like, well, don't drink right before you go to bed. You know, give yourself yeah. a couple of hours, empty your bladder. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, so that's a sleep hygiene, but not, has nothing to do right. with your body weight, though. But that is a persistent myth. But just interesting, get, yeah, it's bottom, a very persistent myth. You're bottom like, oh. line, bottom line, doesn't matter when you consume your calories. She was Evan. Yeah. So some people think that we're in the middle of a sixth extinction right now. A lot of people do, but not everybody believes that. Nope, not everyone. Not everyone. This was a article I read, written by Peter Brannon at the Atlantic, and he did a nice interview with a gentleman named Doug Irwin, who's a paleontologist for the uh, Smithsonian Institution. And uh, this is kind of an aside. I wanted to bring this up. He rumor, he's rumored to have served as a mass extinction consultant to Cormac McCarthy's post-apocalyptic book called The Road. I don't know if any of you have read that. Hmm. Um, I know it from the movie. I saw the I, movie. I saw the, yeah. I saw the movie. That's, that's, that's one of the hardest movies I've ever seen in my life. It, it is a it is a gut punch that movie. And he also um, uh, Cormac McCarthy also wrote No Country for Old Men. That was a great um, movie. So yeah, another great movie. So just a little aside there. But in any case, Doug Irwin, paleontologist, and according to Irwin, we are not in the sixth extinction yet. Mm. All right. And he said specifically in this interview, and I'll quote him, people who claim we're in the sixth mass, mass extinction don't understand enough about mass extinctions to understand the logical flaw in their argument. To a certain extent, they're claiming it as a way of frightening people into action when, in fact, if it's actually true that we're in a sixth mass extinction, then there's no point in conservation biology. What he's basically saying is that 
once you're over the line and you've declared it, it's too late anyways. There's nothing you can do. All the conservation in the world will not stop it. It's a cascade effect. He says that it's a network collapse problem, like a power grid. Or, you know, he uh, earlier in the interview, he talked about the 2003 power outage that took place in the Northeast. And he talked about how that sort of cascaded into this larger, larger problem. He said that's kind of what happens with the with these events and nothing and nothing is going to stop it. He says there are physicists studying it who don't care about power grids or ecosystems. They care about math. So the secret about power grids is that nobody actually knows how they work. And that's the exact same problem you have in ecosystems. He goes on to say, I think that if we keep things up long enough, we'll get to a mass extinction, but we're not in a mass extinction yet. And I think that it's an optimistic discovery because that means we actually do have time to avoid Armageddon. Yeah, so I think he's playing with definition there. And his point is taken. He has a point. Is that in the past, the, you know, the, the first five mass extinctions involved ecosystem collapse at some level, and we're not at that point yet. But that doesn't mean that we're, there isn't accelerated extinction going on right now. By some meta- estimates, uh, species are going extinct five to six times the background rate. Because species oh. are always going extinct. But and it's like- was, I think it's uh, amphibians? are going extinct at like something crazy, like 35,000 times the background, right? Like there are certain really yeah, extreme examples of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But here's Ugh. the other thing. Is how, that how do you determine background rate? You calculate how many, how often do species go extinct? Like how long do they survive? How many species are there in the world? Therefore, there should be this number of extinctions per year just as the background yeah. rate of extinctions. And yet there are more than that. Uh, but we don't really know how many. We don't know how many extinctions there are every year because we don't have a survey of all the animals, and and we, and we so it's estimated, and it's and the estimates are all in dispute uh, because you yeah, have yeah, a lot of assumptions. Yeah. That's what I found. That's yeah. what I found. For for example, there was a, a paper published in the journal Nature, 2011. Over and they they said that over the last 500 years there have been just 875 confirmed extinctions. Yeah, but confirmed that's that's confirmed. That's at the the maximally conservative end, where like we've gone decades without detecting any of these animals. Yeah, it doesn't even it doesn't even account for things that are like violently threatened. Right, and and plus we only know of a, of, of maybe one tenth of the species that actually exist on the entire planet to begin with. We don't know how many are going extinct. We haven't identified them all by any well, stretch. Also, yeah. Evan, like, how does he define? I know that we have a proper definition for the previous five mass extinctions, but right. didn't those extinctions occur over hundreds of thousands, even millions of years? And we're looking at records of hundreds of years. With when we're talking about this quote unquote six, it just seems like the boundaries are fuzzier than he's making them out to be when he was talking about it in the interview he was talking about it in the context that if you want to say that the mass extinction is 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 currently underway then you can go back tens of thousands of years and say that that's where it started basically with you know human civilization Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and 50 what fifty thousand years ago so essentially you can tie it back to that because once that occurred it really changed the whole game of how of the planet yeah massively and you said when you and he says that when you take it into a scale like that, that that is more in line with how the rapid decline of the of the species that were lost in the other um, in the other mass extinctions that took place way back many 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 years ago. Isn't that how most people who talk about the sixth extinction they talk about it having correlated with human beings coming 
Oh into yeah, play. There's no question. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's also you know yeah. So he he studies mass extinctions, but he's looking back at completed extinction events, and yeah. we're talking about are we in the middle of one or and even so at the you, beginning? You at can't the very beginning, apply yeah, the same the criteria point. because we're not saying that one has happened. We're saying is one in progress. Of course, we haven't tipped over to it being completed yet. That's the whole point of saying we're in the middle of it. But let me make a, just a couple of the points. I've, I have read mm-hmm. a lot about this as well. So one one point is that what when in trying to estimate more accurately the number of species that has gone extinct, what what some researchers have found is that when because uh, some of the estimates are based upon habitat loss, but actually what happens when habitat is lost is that this species will migrate to the most similar habitat they could find. Um, so what you end up happening, even when a, when a species has lost 90% of its habitat, they just crowd into the last 10%. And so what they what they found was that there are far more species in far smaller uh, habitats than there were be- previously. And so, yeah, those species may not have gone extinct, but damn, are they under stress because now they're all crowded together and whatever little you know bit of land is left to them. The second thing is that when a species number is reduced below 2,000, that's a bottleneck, the probability yeah. that they will go extinct over the next 1,000 years approaches 100%. It's not 100%. Yes, and- you can survive the bottleneck, but it gets like it's upwards of 90%. And so that's why, again, people who think that we are in the middle of a mass extinction is because there not only have a lot of species already gone extinct way above the background rate, but because of habitat loss – and species reduction, there are tons of species that almost certainly will go extinct in the next 100 to 1,000 years. Um, and it may yeah. already be too late unless we begin to take extreme actions to preserve them, to pres- preserve habitat, to preserve species, you know, to preserve genetic diversity. Just it's hard. Yep. It's because it takes definitely. millions of years to to generate genetic diversity and you can once you lose it you're you know it's gone and that's like we're not even accounting for that for example like the puma in california the puma is not a threatened species like we know that or i don't know if it is but it's it's definitely not like on the verge of extinction that said it's incredibly inbred like it's not a diverse species anymore just like the florida panther and that's a huge problem but it probably doesn't even show up on these surveys when we're talking about whether or not this is a mass extinction how many places has biodiversity gone down the toilet but the animals aren't technically yet extinct yeah that's my point so unless we take measures to reverse this trend it's clear from everything we know you know that yeah that there's a, a lot of species not only have already gone extinct, but will go extinct. Yeah, they're, There's just no ex- way. they're the so, walking extinct. They're, they're, they're so, the walking extinct. There's no way that we could maintain the biodiversity. Half the land on the earth is farmland now, half, right? We've mentioned that multiple times on the show before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just recently. There's mm-hmm. massive habitat loss. Just There's no way we're going to maintain the biodiversity with that. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, unfortunately, I think there's no way – I think there's no way to avoid a major extinction. All we could do now is try to minimize it. So therefore, is the question, are we in it or are we on the cusp of it? Is it a moot point? Yeah, it's a, is it's it really a, it's a senseless Definition, kind of it's point? semantics. 
it is what it is. I think you know, he's saying if you define it as ecosystem collapse, it hasn't happened yet. Okay, fine. But we are – by every indicator is that we're in the middle of one. All right. So I know we've been talking a lot recently about a lot of paleontological stuff, but there's just been so many cool discoveries recently. You know, I don't know why they're all happening at once. So recently, get this, some uh, in northern Africa, so this is like north of the Sahara, basically in Morocco, there, there was previously there was a find uh, with um, some human remains that they thought, eh, maybe these are Neanderthal, maybe, you know, they're like 40,000 years old or not really, they couldn't date them directly because they just, they weren't found in material that can be dated very well. But then they found some further, like another layer there, like some further specimens that was in situ, meaning that it was embedded in material and that material could be dated. Uh, and they did, they had with further specimens. Now they have specimens from at least five individuals, uh, all from the same time period. And they were able to date it. And they came up with two very interesting bits of information, especially when you combine them together. One is that these specimens are fully modern Homo sapiens. Okay. And two is that mm-hmm. they're at least 300,000 years old. 300,000. Yeah, which pushes back the, the origin of Homo sapiens 100,000 years. 100. Damn. That's, that's not and a also small amount. Yeah. Out of Africa, right? Or well, no, no, it's, it's Morocco. Technically it's, out of Africa. It's, yeah, it is Morocco. It's, that's but right. it's not sub Saharan Africa, which mm-hmm. is where. So previously it was thought that you know, our species evolved in, in sub Saharan Africa maybe 200,000 years ago. And now we find the specimens in, you know, in Morocco. 300,000 to 350,000 at the high end uh, 1,000 years ago. So uh, as we've said previously, this is a a jigsaw puzzle where every time we find a new piece, we realize that the puzzle is bigger than we thought and more complicated than we thought. So now if if this is true, so again, always this has to really go through the meat grinder of peer review and people have got to question it and, and make sure. But it's, you know, it sounds pretty solid, but we'll see. This means that, you know, again, humans evolved earlier than we thought, but not only that, they may have been far ranging. They may, humans may have ranged all over Africa not just limited to sub-Saharan Africa. Right, right. That's something right there. Just that alone is pretty, yep. pretty different right. than what I've been this hearing. This would have made years. a good science or fiction, Steve. You might have gotten me on this one. Yeah, but it was too wide, yeah. too widely reported, I thought. But Jean-Jacques Hublin from the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig made the recent discovery and analysis. And he said, yeah, this is a huge finding. Uh, and it, and it has, you know, significant implications for how we figure like what evolved from what. If you remember, we were talking about Homo naledi, uh, recently, which is the other, that, that was actually was a science or fiction. There's some information about Homo naledi. They found more specimens. They were able to date them, found that they were actually more recent than we had thought, uh, because mm-hmm. they had very, they had some ancient, more primitive features relative. When we say that, we always mean relatively, you know, on the, if you're looking at the, the line that led to to Homo sapiens, you know, relatively modern or or primitive on that line. It's always a relative uh, statement. Not that there's something inherently primitive or, or advanced. You know what I mean? But anyway, mm-hmm. so what this means is that we don't know how to connect the lines yet. We don't have enough specimens to know what evolved from what when. We, we we're just filling in the space, you know, between chimpanzees and humans, and there's lots of branching going on. The other thing is that the concept of species. I think now that we are sort of delving down 
deep into the details of this, you know, eight eight million years of evolution from the last common ancestor with chimps to to ourselves to modern humans, that the concept of species is just too fuzzy to even to think about this in terms of species. You know what I mean? I think that we have to really think about the fact that there were just populations spread throughout Africa. And those populations were only like metastable collections of features of, of genes. But, you know, we only can infer those genes through the morphology we could see in the fossils. And that also they're interbreeding. Remember, don't forget about that. This is like these are uh, all yeah. close enough together that there's probably a lot of hanky-panky going on. So the idea of, of trying to imagine the, you know, the evolution of humans from the last common ancestor with chimps as – you know, species A gave rise to species B, gave rise to species C. It's just not going to work. It's just that's not the way it, it it's happened. It's not linear at all. Yeah. It's not only is it not linear, but I mean, even just the very concept of species A and species B is just too fuzzy. It's just, I don't think that we can really break it down that way. You have, you have subtypes. Like even this species, it's Homo sapiens. It's, it's our species, but it's, it's an, it's ancient Homo species, Homo sapiens. So it has some, Features like it has prominent eyebrows, more eye ridges, more so than than you or I, for example, and the slightly smaller brain case. So it's still within the range of Homo sapiens, but we could tell it's not a modern day right. Homo sapiens. So it's like a like a point nine eight Homo sapiens. Yeah, whatever. Scenario, yeah, yeah. Right? So it's so. What does that mean? So is that just because it was three hundred thousand years ago, or is that because there's other species mixed in there? And you know, who knows? Uh, it's very very complicated, but. That, that's a mind blower. That this the, the whole the past two minutes, like holy crap. Hominids were a successful, widespread species in Africa and spreading out of Africa. The fact it's it's, it's a, just an accident of of evolutionary history that there's just one tiny little branch left, and not only that, but fairly recently we passed through bottlenecks. So, like two hundred thousand years ago, there was a pretty significant bottleneck. Uh, yeah, how how low did we get? Was it like two thousand? Again, probably it like two thousand. Yeah, right? right at the right at the cusp there. Yeah, right at the and cusp that, of extinction. That little that little filter we went through, uh, that supremely diminished our diversity. We we would see if we if it wasn't if it weren't for that bottleneck, we would see. I would just love to think sometimes what kind of diversity we would see. Just think of uh, other animals like sure, elephants, yeah. right? Like there's African and Indian elephants. There's four species of zebra that are actual different species, you know. There's actually a third species of elephant, though, too. They, they found. Oh yeah, I know. They, was, they yeah, genetically yeah. thought it was divided into two, but well, look at dogs. If only, if only dachshunds survived, right? Then that's what dogs would be. They would be dachshunds, right? And all that and other, they, yeah, then they, other right. genetic diversity would be lost. So yeah, we're like the dachshunds of the hominids. We're just the ones that survived. Can and we, can we be the, the long-haired dachshund? I like those. Maybe, yeah. The long-haired miniature dachshund. <laughs> They're so cute. Watching this story unfold with fascination, it just keeps getting more interesting. And it also seems like just the quality and number of fossils that we're finding now is just so much better. You know, like we're finding these these sites with multiple specimens and, and like full skulls and really good specimens. And that's just you know, dumb luck, right? It's not, not even about skills, I don't think. It's I, like I, I don't know. There's think it's skill just in knowing where to look. Yeah, I think we're just getting better at looking and we have maybe have more people doing it or whatever. I think, yeah, it's, I don't think it's just luck. I think we're, we know the, the scientists are getting better at, at ferreting these things out. It's partly luck, absolutely. Like any, any time you're looking for stuff, but 
yeah, hopefully there's more to come, you know. Who knows what wacky stuff there is out there for us to find, you know, entire new species that we – like, for example, we talked about even the Graco – did we talk about Graecopithecus where there was, you know uh, – I don't think so. Yeah, the, the maybe the closest common ancestor to humans and chimps was actually outside of Africa, although it was at she a time was. when the Mediterranean was was probably walkable, you know. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, Blue Apron. The basic concept here is they send you just the ingredients that you need with very few exceptions. Like they usually don't send you salt, which you probably have in your house. But you follow the recipe and you've got a fresh cooked dinner and it usually is very easy to do. What I love is that it's what you need. I I see so much waste with food. One of the things I love about Blue Apron is that you get just what you need with minimal waste. And because there's minimal waste, it really helps you save money too. I mean, it's under $10 per person per meal. You're not overbuying at the grocery store. $10 per person per meal. And uh, you get a nice home-cooked meal with your family that you made yourself. Here are some featured upcoming meals from BlueApron.com. Warm smoked trout and asparagus salad with fingerling potatoes and garlic croutons. Spiced zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice. Elote-style vegetable tostadas with summer squash, poblano, peppers, and cilantro rice. And peach honey glazed chicken with mashed sweet potatoes, collard greens, and Thai basil. Yeah, so check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash SGU. That's blueapron.com slash SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Bob. Tell us about how stars are born. So astronomers have uh, concluded that most, if not all, lower mass stars start off as binaries. That means that our sun probably had a companion star long ago that, that is now long gone and among all the other stars in our, in our stellar neighborhood. Now we've known, but we've known for a long time, right, that there's plenty of multiple star systems out there. And, uh, but this is the first time that there's some solid data to, to support the idea that essentially all of sun-like stars were born in multiples. Now they, they came to this conclusion after looking at the Perseus molecular cloud 600 light years away at 50 light years long. So some of you might be thinking, all right, what's a molecular cloud? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, well, all right, I know what a cloud is. I know what molecules are, but what's going on with this in space? Clouds are already so, <laughs> made of molecules, right? right. <laughs> so um, um, so most o- a molecular cloud is most often a cloud of hydrogen, probably not too easy, not, not too hard to figure out. But but what kind of hydrogen? There's There's three natural isotopes of hydrogen, and two of them are stable. So if you look around the universe, you're going to find three natural isotopes. Um, two of them are going to last for a long time. Other ones, the other one is not. So let's start with, uh, hydrogen three. That's called, uh, tritium. That's one proton and two neutrons. And, uh, but it's radioactive. It's got a half-life of 12.3 years. Not long. So that's, so that's not stable. Hydrogen two is deuterium. That's one proton, one neutron. But it's not the most common type of hydrogen. The most common is hydrogen one. That's one proton. And that's it. One proton and an electron. Uh, no neutrons at all. Now, I didn't know this, and I kind of love this. What do you call that? Hydrogen 2 is deuterium. Hydrogen 3 mm-hmm. is tritium. What's hydrogen 1? Hydrogen. Well, everybody, right. Everybody just calls it hydrogen. But it had a name that's not used very much, and it was called protium. 
P-R-O-T-I-U-M, protium, mm. and I kind of love that word. I'm going to start using that instead of hydrogen. And no one will know what you're talking about. Right, but they'll they'll learn. <laughs> so this is a molecular cloud then, though. So that means that, that two proteums have covalently bonded together to form molecular hydrogen. That's two protons and two electrons. So that's basically the what this molecular cloud or these molecular clouds are made of. And that is also happens to be the primary form of hydrogen found in the universe. These molecular clouds are filled with gas and dust, which doesn't let visible light out or visible light through it. So they basically look like a dark void in space. Um, they're actually really cool looking. Uh, just do a Google image search. There are, some of them are actually beautiful. You see this weird void against uh, the bright, this bright backdrop of stars because they they basically, you know, they they let the the photons gather for a, a long period of time. So the background stars are really bright, and you got this this creepy kind of void in the background. It almost looks like a, a dark rift into an alternate universe. But that's that's a molecular cloud. So now these these clouds are also called probably. Really importantly, stellar nurseries, because within them, they've got these basically these egg-shaped cocoons, as some people refer to them, which are also called dense cores. And so these dense cores are sprinkled throughout the molecular cloud, and uh, this is where uh, the molecular cloud is dense enough to collapse into stars. If you looked at these molecular clouds with light telescopes, you're not going to see much. It's just a dark void. But radio telescopes, though, you can see what's going on, uh, which is, and that's why the, these researchers used uh, the Very Large Array, which is a collection of radio dishes in New Mexico. Now, using this array, they completed the very, very first full survey of all all young stars in a molecular cloud. First time ever. Never, never been done to this extent before. They, they then did what I mention quite often in these types of news items. They combined that data set with another data set from another telescope, a different telescope. And this time it was the James Clerk Maxwell telescope in Hawaii. So they take these two data sets, put them together, and they get lots of new information. So looking at the resulting detailed star information, but they then tried to explain it as how right, how do these stars how do they get to where they are how do, why in this Perseus molecular cloud why do these stars have why are they arranged the way they are why are they separated by these d- specific distances um, if they all came from the same cloud why are they arranged in this particular way so they they ran these um, these mathematical models these simulations over and over and over to try to see what kind of models could replicate the ob- the observations that they were making and they found the only model that replicated what they were seeing in the Perseus molecular cloud was if these low mass sun-like stars are born together no other scenario kind of made that work so first author Sarah Sadovoy said, based on our simple model, we say that nearly all stars form with a companion. The Perseus cloud is generally considered a typical low mass star forming region, but our model needs to be checked in other clouds. So yeah, they're going to have to run this on other clouds, but the Perseus cloud is, is fairly typical. It's not atypical. So it makes sense to, 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 to be confident at least that once they start looking at other clouds, they may come to the, to the very same uh, conclusions. All right. So you've got these stars that are, that are similar to the sun in mass and they're born as binaries. And, uh, then what? What happens? Cause we're, we're not a binary anymore. What happened? So what they think happened was that, that either one of, either one of two things happens. Either they, either, uh, they shrink, the bound stars shrink and form a tightly coupled, long lasting binary system. 
right? You end up with binary stars that stay that way for for billions of years, essentially, or or the separation grows wider and wider until there's essentially no gravitational binds between you know between the sibling stars, and they just go off on their own, orbiting the galaxy by themselves, just like our sun. So that means that uh, if these guys are right, the sun at one point probably did have a companion star, you know, maybe not a twin, then, but it's probably long gone and just lost itself in among. The thousands of stars in our in our stellar neighborhood. It could be, you know, any any of those stars. And and is the bottom line is that they think that that happens because the collapsing clouds are egg shaped, and their egg shaped clouds are going to form the two foci and the two the two stars. Yeah, I do remember that. But uh, other websites I went to though didn't you didn't even discuss that too much. So yeah, so okay. I mean, I guess it could. I like the idea of the the foci. Um, that's an interesting idea. That, that seems reasonable to me. All right, Jay, who's that noisy time? Okay, last week I played this noisy. That's the android from Alien uh, during his meltdown. Yeah, it's very uh, uncomfortable. Where he was babbling. Yeah, it reminded me of that, Ev. I definitely thought about that. So that is a that's a neural network learning speech. It, it it examines speech that's put into it, and then it tries to mimic it. And it's and it's the active process of it trying to learn human speech. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, very very uh. very cool. You know, I I just can't help but think that someday we're going to be talking to androids or talking to synths without getting into the consciousness part of it, but they're going to perfectly sound human and look mostly human, and we're going to be talking to them as if they're real. Sure. So we had a a winner, and a ton of people guessed 100% correctly, so anyone that sent in the correct guess, um, great job. The winner from last week, Jeremy Hamilton, said, I suspect that the most reason who's that noisy is the output of a neural network trained on a data set of someone counting. I don't like it. I know. I told you. I predicted <laughs> that Kara was not going to like this. Yeah, one. it's creepy. It's like yeah, uncanny really? valley. It's, it's creepy. Yes. It's yeah. unnatural. Uncanny valley with voice. Yeah. Awesome. It's like, a imagine, boy, yeah. <laughs> imagine like you're a scientist, and it's three in the morning, and you're walking into your lab. You can't sleep. Oh yeah. And then, okay. And you hear one of the one of the computers <laughs> sussing okay. out reality, trying to figure it all out while the scientists are gone at night. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a there's a cool story in there somewhere. Anyway, I have a new noisy this week. This noisy was sent in by JP Leet. This one is cool. Take a listen. I have to play it again because it's probably the shortest noisy I've ever done. Yeah. I ag- love it. I, I love agree, R two. That was very R two. It's like a cute robot. Whatever that was, it is the sound of a cute robot. Yes, and wait until you find out what it is. If you have a guess or you heard something really cool this week, email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Thank you, Jay. All right, Kara, what's the word? Ooh, the word this week was actually recommended by a listener, Mark Leach from the UK. Ooh, a chemistry professor, actually. He said, volatile has three uses, two correct and one wrong due to the confusion of the two or more correct versions. One, the boiling point of a liquid. 
Quote, ethanol is more volatile than water. And we will get to that in a minute. Number two, economics. The markets were volatile today. Number three, explosives, bombs, etc. The explosive was very volatile. Volatile. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The explosive was not volatile. It was sensitive. Anyway, there's more to the story than this. Keep up the good work. And you're right, Mark. There are a lot of definitions of volatile, even more than those. Um, yeah. The one that is necessary for science, we'll spend a little more time on. So let's talk about the other ones first. If I look at Merriam-Webster, which is kind of the standard for the American dictionary, characterized by or subject to rapid or unexpected change, that's kind of where that volatile market comes into play place um, or somebody has a volatile temper temper or unable to hold the attention fixed because of an inherent lightness or fickleness of disposition. So somebody might be volatilely incapable of paying attention to something. They're too fickle to, uh, to or they're they're screwing off too much. What was that? What? Exactly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Gotcha. You always get me. Okay. Um, another definition, tending to erupt into violence. And I think that's where the misconstruing of the definition comes in because, you know, there can be a volatile crowd that then erupts into violence, but explosives. So that crowd itself could be explosive, which is a synonym for volatile in that usage, but you wouldn't call an explosive a volatile explosive. Um, also easily aroused, but there continues to be this theme of lightheartedness and liveliness. But then he here comes the scientific definition, readily vaporizable at a relatively low temperature, difficult to capture or hold permanently, which relates to that. And then a usage that we don't often think about, but um, is is deep and old, flying or having the power to fly. So if you see something on the wing, you could call that volatile. And I'm about to tell you why. It's because the 1590s definition of volatile is either evaporating rapidly, which again, we will, we will get to, or fine or light. And that comes from, you can break it down from the middle French back to the Latin. It's a past participle of the word volare, which means to fly. And so the words that came out of that, like it being readily changing, fickle and flighty came about in the 1600s. But previous to that, actually in Middle English in the 1300s, volatiles were birds, butterflies, and other winged creatures. And so it really did kind of build upon that, which I think is just so lovely. But when we talk about something being volatile in the scientific sense, we're really talking about a substance that vaporizes readily. So volatility is the measure of how readily a substance goes from liquid to gas. Substances can also go straight from solid to vapor, which is actually called sublimation, but we still often use the term volatile to, to describe that substance. So a volatile substance has a high vapor pressure at a given temperature compared with a non-volatile compound. So a really good example of that is ethanol. You can put water in a glass and it slowly evaporates. But if you leave the cap off of your ethanol bottle, you're actually going to lose your ethanol pretty quickly. Yeah, that's the sense in which I, I tend to use the word, you know, rapidly evaporating, you know, volatile liquid. 
Yeah, in most scientific contexts, that's really what you're reading. That's what it means. So if you're reading something, a journal article, and they say this is a highly volatile compound, they're not saying it's going to explode. Yeah. They're saying it's going to evaporate or vaporize pretty yeah. readily. It's going to become gaseous. So keep that in mind. But that said, when we use it colloquially, we often are talking about things exploding, which is, you know, an ex- exploding in anger, exploding in violence, which is where I think a lot of the confusion comes in. But if you always remember that volatiles are things like birds and butterflies, they're on the wing, they're up in the air, then maybe it'll be easier to remember uh, the actual definition, which is things that mm. vaporize very readily. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Kara. One email today. This is just a quick follow-up on the science or fiction item from one or two weeks ago about CRISPR. Remember, you guys were all disappointed about the study showing yes. greater than 1,500 off-target mutations in yep. the CRISPR-Cas9 treated mice. All right. So this yeah, email one, comes one from- didn't know, though. Go ahead. From uh, Mark Zeist from Switzerland, and Mark writes, Last week in Science or Fiction, there was an item about greater than 1,500 off-target mutations in CRISPR-Cas9-treated mice. Uh, Science Friday podcast also covered this. It seems this finding is controversial. The the statistics are shaky, and so is the editing technique used. Uh, And he goes on with some other details. But So here's the bottom line. So the the, the study was looking at mice that had been treated with with CRISPR, which is a gene editing technology that is very exciting, uh, to treat blindness. And then the, the new study looked at those two mice that had been treated and tried to figure out how many they did it. They sequenced their entire genome and tried to figure out how many mutations they had as a result of the CRISPR. And they found what they claimed they were greater than 1,500 mutations off targets or not with not the intended genetic change, but unintended genetic changes. So if true, that would be very disappointing. It would mean that uh, these are not as targeted or precise uh, mechanisms as we thought. But uh, Mark is correct in that, and I, did, I also wrote a follow-up on, on Neurologica about this, that um, there have been a lot of, you know, this is now the peer review, pro- the post-publication peer review where scientists pour over and go, mm, I don't quite buy what you're selling here. They're basically saying that the techniques they use to estimate the number of mutations is not that reliable. And in fact, they, because keep in mind, they didn't do a pre-treatment and post-treatment comparison. They just looked at the mice who had been treated and then tried to infer how many mutations they had by comparing them to their litter mates. And what some of the critics pointed out that you don't know how many of these mutations are just the natural variation. Duh. The, you know, what and, the hell? <laughs> Come on, that's a no-brainer. They weren't clones. So of course they're going to be right. different. Yeah. That, yeah, so, that, that wipes out any, any all of it. It's like, well, come back when you got something. <laughs> Something that's reasonable. So, so, well, I think I don't think it wipes it out entirely. What, it, to, in my right, opinion, what, what this says is okay. This is a legitimate concern, and maybe we need to look more carefully at this question, not just assume that the CRISPR technique doesn't cause off-target mutations, uh, especially outside of the areas that they knew were at risk. This is at you know parts of the genome where they didn't realize were at risk. Um, so clearly, what we need, I think, is a study that does a pre and post treatment whole genome sequencing to definitively answer this question, how many off-target mutations are being caused? So essentially, 
we this puts it puts the study back into the unknown category. This is an, an issue. It's an open question, but this study didn't answer the question. It found it an interesting finding, but not definitive. So more research is necessary. Thanks for writing in, Mark. All right, guys, let's go on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week, and if you guys didn't anticipate this theme, that's on you, because the theme is Vienna. Yeah. Ah, uh, <laughs> oh, no. Wunderbar. And there are four items. You guys ready? Yeah. All right, yes. here we go. Item number one. Vienna has a population of 1.8 million people, which is the same as its population in 1900 and represents over one quarter of the entire population of Austria. Item number two, both the snow globe and the Pez dispenser were invented and first sold in Vienna. Item number three, Schobrunn Palace, the summer home of the Habsburgs, was modest by European standards containing 74 rooms. Uh, number four, in the old markets of Vienna, it was common to find monkey grooming services to pay to have a monkey remove lice and fleas from your head. Uh, Kara, you made a noise. Damn it. <laughs> Kara, go first. <laughs> Mute is your friend. <laughs> okay. Vienna has a population of 1.8 million. Sounds about right, which is the same as its population in 1900. Does not sound right. And represents over one quarter of the entire population of Austria. Sounds about right. Okay. Seeing a red flag in the middle of that one. But um, both the snow globe and the Pez dispenser were invented and first sold in Vienna. Who knows? This one could be the death of me. How do I know such things? Ah, I suck at trivia. Okay. Schönbrunn Palace. The summer home of the Habsburgs was modest by European standards, containing 74 rooms. Well, modest in terms of a palace or just modest in terms of like any old house? Yeah, in terms of a palace. Okay. In the old markets of Vienna, it was common to find monkey grooming services to pay to have a monkey remove lice and fleas from your head. I really want that one to be true. I'm, I'm, this is all shot in the dark. So nobody follow my lead on this, okay? But I'm going to say that the Schönbrunn Palace is the fiction. Maybe this palace is special because it had way more rooms than most castles. Okay. Jay? Vienna's population, uh, 1.8 million. Steve says it's the same as it was in 1900. Wow. And, uh, that's a quarter of the entire population of Austria. Yeah, I mean, okay. This has a lot of facts in it. Of course, the, you know, the population being 1.8 million back in 1900. I don't know why, you know, my gut is kind of doing the same that Kara's is, but I don't see that one as being too crazy. The next one here, the snow globe and the Pez dispenser were invented and first sold in Vienna. Pez dispenser, huh? I could see the snow globe, but, but the Pez dispenser. I mean, I could see, all right, this is another one, just like the first one. Like, okay, I mean, I don't have anything to really say yes or no to. The Pez dispenser does not feel like a Vienna-based artifact, but it, but who am I to say? Schoenbrunn Palace, uh, 74 rooms. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, when I was at the Medici Castle slash Palace in Italy, there was way more than 74 rooms, I think. So would that be considered big? Okay. 
Okay, I will continue on. In the old markets, Vienna is common to find monkey grooming services. What the hell? But why do they have all these monkeys? I mean, sure, I could see if there was a reason to have monkeys, then yes, business would follow. But what's with the monkeys? Why? Why in Vienna would they have monkeys? Oh, so the only thing I have to go on here is that Kara picked number three. <laughs> Show and Bruin Palace. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know anything about any of this stuff, except I've, I've spent time with Pez dispensers. I used to love them when I was a kid and eat reams of that candy. I will go with Kara simply because she's my only data point. <laughs> okay, Evan. The population. So 1.8 million, same as 1,900, and a one quarter of the entire population. It's probably about right, one quarter of the population. And it's probably the same, maybe because, I don't know, two world wars maybe kind of had an impact on on population growth in Austria. Um, Vienna as well. May have uh, you know been some extra people gone off to war and didn't come back, and that could have definitely had an impact to help keep the population from sort of rising. Maybe as we think about other cities, major cities in Europe. So I think that one's right. And then the the second one, Snow Globe and Pez dispenser invented and first sold in Vienna. Um, I have a feeling this one's right as well. Pez is uh, there's a Pez distributor it must be a distributor here in connecticut i think it's the u.s headquarters for pez if in fact it is a a european or even an austrian say company but i think it's here in connecticut i think that's about all i know about pez oh and the candy is disgusting third one the schoenbrunn palace yeah this this one could be the fiction 74 rooms by no means is small there's (laughs) i'm trying to picture some of the other major palaces of europe and you know, I doubt that they're much, much larger than than that. Maybe there are a few, but I don't know. When you com- start comparing them to other palaces, maybe not. And the monkey one, I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's just too crazy to to be the fiction. I mean, why why would that be the fiction <laughs> of, of all things? Unless you totally made this up from uh, from your mind, Steve. So I mean, that one's got to be science. That that leaves the uh, the palace. That's got to be the fiction. That's it. Process of elimination done. And Bob. So Vienna has the same population in 1900. Now, does that? Yeah, that middle one is a bit of a red flag. Let's see. Yeah, and like Jay said, Pez, Vienna. What? What? Really? That doesn't <laughs> doesn't follow. Um, doesn't seem quite right. And the, the monkey grooming. That's just a, such a wonderful idea. I'm just thinking the accessibility of monkeys going back. Um, what old markets like what 100, 200 years ago? I mean. I mean, you really, it wouldn't be, they had money. I mean, sure, they could probably get their hands on, on a monkey. Um, <laughs> I love it. I just love it. I want that to be true so badly as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm just leaning towards the palace because that, it, it seems easy just to, for, for that to be fake. Like, I know nothing about the Schoenbrunn Palace, but maybe it's, it's, you know, maybe it's got 500 rooms and blows away European standards. That seems, 500? Well, you know, I'm just saying. It maybe it's it's really extravagant, even by European standards, uh, far to, above and beyond any any typical palaces. Um, so maybe it's just such a standout that it's, you know, that this is way off. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the crowd. Say that Schönbrunn Palace is fiction. Okay, so I'll take wow. these in order. What? Everybody agreed with me. What the hell's happening? We'll start with. What if we don't know <laughs> shit either. What Carrie, you, know? resp- yeah. you are responsible for our collective success for, or collective For our failure. sweep is what's about to happen. Oh, yeah. He'll yeah. most likely will sweep. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, we'll start with item the number ice. one. Vienna has a population of Vienna has a population of 1.8 million people, which is the same as its population in 1900, and represents over one quarter of the entire population of Austria. You guys all think that one is science, and that one is science. Uh, actually, Vienna's population peaked in 1920 at about or at just over two million, uh, and it's actually dropped a little bit since then, down to the level where it was at in around 1900. It really took off in the 1800s, like between 1800 and 1900 is when the population dramatically increased from about a hundred thousand to about two million, wow. and then it's been stable. Yeah, during the 20th century, pretty much um, dip after World War II, big time. It hasn't, it hasn't quite recovered to its pre-World War II numbers. And oh, yeah, it's wow. the capital city of Austria, and it's like a quarter of the people in Austria live in Vienna. The one that blows my mind the most is that it's the same as 1900, though. Yeah, yeah that, that's a hard yeah. one to swallow. Because like, there are places, like I think Honolulu has like 80% of the population of all of Hawaii, which is crazy. But yeah. I, there mm-hmm. are places like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's crazy that it hasn't grown. It's grown everywhere else. Uh, okay, let's move on to number two. Both the snow globe and the Pez dispenser were invented we and first sold in Vienna. <laughs> you guys all think this one is science, and this one is science. Guys, fifty percent chance. So Not really, but that's okay. <laughs> that's, that, that's the Monty Pi- That's the Monty Hall. <laughs> yeah, the Monty Hall fallacy. Oh well, sort of. Because <laughs> I know what the right answer is. So, Steve, really. are, are you saying yeah, Steve, revealed, that we right. can switch to four if we'd like? <laughs> Would you like to? No. Uh, now that we know that two of them are. Well, you're gonna. I guess I'd have to go. I'd have to go with the odds, and then I would and switch. switch. But no. We'll follow the rules. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, Pez was f- first big. The candy came first, right? So, Pez was invented by Eduard Haas. It's still sold by the Haas Company uh, in Vienna, Aust- Austria uh, in 1927. The word Pez, P-E-Z, is an abbreviation for Pfefferminz. Which is German for peppermint. <laughs> oh, I no Peppermint. J. Because originally they were just, they were peppermint. That's the only flavor that they came in. And they were breath mints and they were sold in a little tin. Uh, and then. Like Altoids today. Then the Pez dispenser was invented by Oscar Uxa for the Haas Food Manufacturing Corporation. And they were, what do you think the Pez dispensers were made to? Deliberately to look like uh, dolls, little little soldiers, maybe or dolls. Um, Think wow, about their size and shape. Well, they were made to look like cigarette lighter. Cigarette lighter. That's oh, correct. Okay. There you go. Oops, yeah, I was going to say uh, because and the, and the slogan was that it was it was supposed to be an alternative to smoking. It's like no smoking, but you can but pezzing, you know. So, <laughs> like instead of taking out your cigarette lighter, take out the Pez dispenser and you eat one of the Pez. That was the origin of the Pez dispenser. And you're right, Evan, that uh, Pez built a large factory in Orange, Connecticut in 1983, yeah. which is right by where we live. But yeah, so the Pez dispenser invented in Vienna. And the snow globes, same thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, invented in Vienna. Originally, the, the idea of the snow globe, they were looking for a way to improve the amount of light that a light bulb would give off. And so the flakes mm. were supposed to reflect the light and it completely failed. But it created a really pretty piece of kitsch, you know, that then it gets sold now in pretty much every all around the world. So yeah, so the snow globe. 
And they did sell a lot of snow globes in Vienna. But of course, this I didn't even really notice it because they sell them everywhere. But they, they still like hand make these really exquisite snow globes in Vienna. Let's move on to number three. Uh, Schönbrunn Palace, the summer home of the Habsburgs, was modest by European standards, containing 74 rooms. You guys all think this one is the fiction. Now, what if I told you how many rooms there were in Buckingham Palace? What do you guys think? Oh, God. Uh, 100. 200? 60. Buckingham Palace has 775 Ah! rooms. Whoa. Oh no! Seven hundred. How is that possible? Oh, God. How, there are probably so many dead bodies in that building. <laughs> no one even knows. Oh yeah, <laughs> seven hundred. Seven hundred. When I said five hundred, you laughed, Karen. I like know. <laughs> Schönbrunn oh, Palace has. Are you ready for this? 1,441 rooms. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Yes. 1,400. I got it right for the wrong reason. So clearly, (laughs) clearly I made the wrong one, the fiction this week. Because if I had gone with that, see, to to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, 1,400 rooms. Yeah, all all those palaces have hundreds and hundreds of rooms. I figured you guys would figure that out right away. But uh, apparently, <laughs> yeah, yeah wow. baby. Uh, so we got the tour of Schönbrunn Palace. They showed us through forty rooms, but that was forty out of fourteen hundred and forty-one uh, rooms. She just crazy. barely scratched. The it surface. was massive, gorgeous, massive, with, surrounded by these beautiful gardens and a maze. It was just really incredible. This, this, and that was their summer home. Yeah. <laughs> This was during the empire, right? The Hungary, Hungary, Austria, whatever empire. Austria. This is, yeah, at that time, yeah, I think that the empire would survive over 600 years. You know, the, the, the emperor or empress lived in the castle. Yeah, this was, they were fabulously wealthy, obviously. And you could tell from obviously looking at the palace, you know, how much wealth they had at the time. It was really beautiful, actually. Very, I thought the, the palace was very good. Obviously, always when you're touring these old, old buildings, they, they don't have the same kind of creature comforts that we take for granted. And, you know, even with all of the, the wealth, you know, like their bathrooms are terrible. Uh, but yeah, uh, <laughs> they're still using chamber pots. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like the, the, this palace had one of the first toilets in Europe there and it was just in the, yeah. the prince's bedroom and it was still a piece of crap. It was still like a huh? splintery little, the kind of thing like if it, that were a, a porta potty at a, at a, like a rent fair, <laughs> you'd be like, what the hell is this? Oh, it's like an outhouse. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. exactly just like a little more than an outhouse. But, you know, obviously beautiful architecture, beautiful, you know, artwork, some, you know, incredible woodwork, you know, just really, really uh, beautiful. All right, let me read number four. In the old markets of Vienna, it was common to find monkey grooming services to pay to have a monkey remove lice and fleas from your head. That is science. I and I, I learned that because there's a, a painting in Schönbrunn Palace that actually shows that happening. So it's pretty, pretty good episode. The guy's leaning over with his head and there's a monkey grooming his head. <laughs> now, the, uh, the person giving us the tour followed that up with another piece of information. I almost made this the fiction, but I wanted to, wanted to, I didn't know if you guys would buy the whole monkey grooming thing, but, um, she said, and that's where we get the name flea markets from. And as oh. soon as she said it, I said, that's huh. gotta be bullshit. I just, <laughs> that's one of those things. <laughs> Because when you hear stuff like that from a tour guide, most of this, a lot of the stuff that tour guides tell you that are folksy 
are, yeah. are not true. I would be very skeptical of it. So as soon as I heard that, I'm like, I bet you that's one of those bullshit things that tour guides say that is not true. So and did so you look it up? I, of course I looked it up. And <laughs> it's not true. Right there. <laughs> yeah, it's not true. So, so the, the, or we know, we kind of know what the origin of the term flea market was, although there is some, some debate about it, but the, the first reference to it is from Paris. You know, obviously in the French, but the term literally translates to flea market. And that was because it was, you know, like what we think of today, just people selling their own wares. And oftentimes they were, you know, of low quality. And the fleas refer to the f- literal fleas in like tapestries and furniture. You know, they would be flea infested. Mm-hmm. infested. So that's what became known as the flea market. But such markets existed, you know, in India and China and Bangladesh for a long time before that. So that wasn't the origin of the markets themselves. And then there's an, an alternate theory uh, is that in the 18th century in New York City, there was the fly market derived from the Dutch word Vlai meaning swamp or valley. So because New York was very swampy. So it was like the swamp market and the word got mistranslated mm. to fly market or flea market. <laughs> but I think that the French theory is much better. It did not come from Vienna. It did not come from monkeys picking lice off of people's heads or whatever. Could you imagine pretty much everyone was basically lice inf- infested at that time? I, mean, I think like, about uh, how bad people smelled. I know. Oh, and their teeth, Jay, right? The teeth. Teeth, no deodorant, just like they never took showers. Whenever you watch a period film like from two, three hundred years ago – and and you see how people all have perfect teeth and they're healthy. Forget you know? it. It's like forget about it. At that time, everyone was a wreck, right? Most people yep. must have had like horrible teeth, boils everywhere. They, <laughs> we just think of all the stuff you've had in your life that you've treated and got better, you know. Yeah, but imagine okay. now you 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 were just think about every little thing you had happen to you in your life, and if you didn't have modern treatment for it, right, you'd be a mess. Mm-hmm. You really think it was that bad? Yeah, I do. All right, how yeah. about this, Jay? You know, like when at the time when people wore the wigs, like the when wigs were really the, all the rage, and they had these big elaborate wigs, and they would have to spray them to keep them in place. That rats loved to make nests in them. Yeah, they yeah. act. They in literally their wigs? in their wigs. Rats <laughs> would make oh. nests in their wigs. They had to put a rat cage over their wig at <laughs> night to keep the rats away. Oh my God! That's what we're talking about, Jay. They were they were embedded in nature in a way that we would could not imagine living in our world, modern world. Isn't that funny to think oh. about? Oh, forget just, it, man. Just That's why whenever people foul. say, "Hey, if you could go to anywhere, you know, in time, where would you go?" and I always say, "The future, the future." I'll, take my <laughs> the, the I'll roll those dice, yeah. right? Where we have some germs under control. Ew. Oh, yeah, back in the day, women had to wear merkins. You guys know what merkins are, right? No, enlighten us. Uh, They're Americans. And- Mer- merkins <laughs> are... I, I just thought of it because Steve mentioned the wigs and the rats and the wigs. Merkins are vagina wigs. Oh, that's... Yeah, that's right. You had to shave all your hair down there because so you didn't you would be get so lice. infested with yep. nasty and then, and cooties. And then you would wear a wig to cover it up. One. Or prostitutes would wear them because they were so... Like, they had so many diseases. They wanted oh to gosh. cover the signs of the disease. An 18th century prostitute. Forget so it. So gross. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so gross. I love it. It's amazing anybody survived those days. I know. 
That's all right. All right, guys. Well, good job. You got my Vienna <laughs> trivia, right. science or fiction. Thank you. Yeah. All right, Evan, give us a quote. This week's quote was offered up by listener Glenn Bach. Thank you, Glenn. We appreciate it. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Yes, yes. Written by Blaise Pascal. That's a, that's a timely quote because I wrote recently about a study looking at the desirability bias, which is actually uh, oh, yeah. even stronger than the confirmation bias. You yeah. believe what we mm. want to be true. You know, we'll accept information if, it's, if it supports what we want to be true, even more than if it supports what we already believe to be true. But it's actually more complicated than that. If you want to learn all about it, read my blog post on the topic. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure. Roger that. Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.